The Habit of Rivers is, is a masterwork. I think it's a wonderful book. They all do something different. McGuane has a better overview of everything. Uh, I, I believe that Ted is an excellent uh, writer within the philosophic uh, and, and also the, the larger view. But if you look at the difference between a Leeson story or article and, and a McGuane, McGuane is capable of jumping in a variety of different directions, exploding in different directions. That was Nick Lyons talking about two of the greatest contemporary fly fishing writers of our time. We have the man who published and produced some of our greatest fishing books in modern day history. Nick Lyons, today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Wanted to give a quick shout out to our members supported group at the uh, members society. If you want to uh, help keep the lights on here, just head over to wetflyswing.com slash members. And uh, you can join there for about the cup of a nice, uh, nice juicy cup of coffee, a good, good cup of coffee. Uh, so check it out if you get a chance. Uh, Nick Lyons, one of the most influential people in publishing uh, in the publishing world, shares the story of how he uh, put it all together today and some of the great writers he's worked with over the years. We hear about Dave Whitlock, uh, Gary LaFontaine, John Gerock, Art Flick, Hemingway, and even Earl the Pearl Monroe. This one, you know if there's an Earl, Earl the Pearl Monroe sighting, that's going to be a good one. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Sawyer offers a full line of modern and traditional products for oarsmen, canoeists, kayakers, and paddlers from all genres, providing unsurpassed function, performance, and beauty. The Sawyer Artisan Oar is their very popular square top oar with carbon fiber X-weave fiberglass shaft reinforcement, featuring prints of fish species from artists around the country, passionate about fisheries and fishing art. These oars showcase Sawyer's and the artist's ability to create rugged yet highly functional art. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Sawyer to grab your set today. I'm also happy to share another great sponsor we have with us this year. OPST's rods represent decades of dedication to sustained anchor two-handed casting. A rod reflects its designer, and these rods are a true illustration of Skagit Master Edward's vision. The Micro Series uh, from 3 to 5 weight comes exceptionally close to single-handed specs and is proving to be a unique tool for trout and smallmouth anglers. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash OPST to check out the lineup right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash O-P-S-T. Another mega episode for you today. So without further ado, here is Nick Lyons of Lyons Press Publishing. Let's do it. How's it going, Nick? I'm here and I'm delighted to be here with you, Dave. Thanks for thanks for taking this this call, uh, you know, in our podcast this morning. I, I'm I'm really excited to hear back from you. I think I might have heard you on. Uh, we talked a while back. I think maybe I don't know if it was a year ago or longer, but I was kind of trying to get you on. And then I think you had some things, some uh, some health complications, which I'm really excited that you you kind of came out of it. But I heard you recently on uh, the Orvis podcast. I was like, oh man, Nick's Nick's still out there. I gotta I gotta re- reconnect with him. So that's why I'm still yeah. out there and still able to talk a little. 
All right. Good stuff. Well, you've obviously, you're a huge uh, influence on fly fishing and really outdoors and everything you've done in the publishing world. But uh, maybe you can just tell us how you first got into fly fishing. Uh, <clears throat> I should start by saying that I started to fish when I was about five. I was at a little boarding school and um, uh, the presence of a pond called the Ice Pond, where revolutionary folks used to get their ice, uh, filled with sunfish and bullheads and perch, see some some um, uh, other other kinds of odds and ends, and I fished uh, the way a lot of us started with either a bent hook first and then a hook and a stick first and then a rod, uh, and I fished all through my teen years with great passion and through my college years. Uh, it was after college that I. Uh, uh, watched somebody from a bridge in Michigan. I was at the University of Michigan. And I watched somebody, I was standing on the bridge looking down and had a view of a first-rate fly fisherman casting toward the bank, toward under, under, um, uh, under the overhanging branches on one of those sweepers on the Sable. And uh, so watched the fly and watched the trout come up and take it. And the, uh, the, the, the great beauty of the casting and then the excitement of watching that fish come up and take a, uh, a dry fly sent me out of my mind. I got rid of all of my spinning equipment and started. This would have been when I was 26, I guess, which is really the beginning of my fly fishing. Um, I was still at a stage when I would... Uh, string up a rod by putting it through the the, uh, the hook keeper. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't cast. <laughs> uh, nice. It was from that trip, really, that I started, and I mostly fished my tribe taught myself. Uh, my casting is still bad because of it, but I get the line out and I catch some fish. That's <laughs> awesome. That's all. yeah. That sounds a lot like me with the, with spay casting. I got into the spay casting game late, and and because I taught myself uh, from videos, I'm not as good as I probably would have been if I would have gotten instruction along the way. But um, but no, I love it as well, and I, I I think it's awesome you're here. I you know you eventually got into um, I mean obviously writing, pu- uh, publishing, and Lions Press and everything. How, how did it become from that starting out at uh, age 26 into where you actually have a, a career in the fly fishing world? Or, you know, in publishing? It was interesting. Uh, at Crown, where I was executive editor, I was also teaching full-time with a rather large family in New York. Uh, I got a second job, had myself transferred into the night session and started to work in publishing as well as an editor and eventually became the executive editor of a rather large publishing house, still very active. I think they did Obama's... Uh, book or as well michelle obama's book yeah Um, but um i was looking for a specialty i had no sense of where to look for a book or how to sign them up i had picked up a few that came in from agents and then since i was becoming passionate about fly fishing by this time uh, i asked some questions looked around Art Flick's Streamside Guide was the first book that I found. Yep. And I traced him to Westkill, New York, 
got the rights to his book, and then uh, spread out. Um, that book did so well so quickly. I remember Orvis bought, did a first order of 5,000 copies, which was so unusual and so potent a, uh, an advertisement for what this house thought they might sell that they um, uh, decided to let me go ahead. They had bought Der Derrydale Press in the 1940s, I believe, and had done very poorly with fly fishing and all fishing books, and at first were very reluctant. But when Orvis put in that huge order, uh, they said, go ahead, get us more books like that. Hmm. So I, uh, Amazing. I found the Marinaro, which I liked. I found a um, wonderful Lysenring book, The Art of Fishing the Wet Fly. Um, I published, republished the Jennings, which they had the right to, a uh, book of trout flies, uh, and then did an anthology of my own called Fisherman's Bounty, which put me in touch with the entire so-called fishing community. And I began to uh, read wildly, widely, uh, and wildly, <laughs> um, and found a whole batch of other books. Art Flick had fished with uh, uh, Doug Swisher and Carl Richards and had recommended me when they asked about a, a, fishing, uh, a fishing book publisher. Um, and I remember they sent in Selective Trout, and I was at a reasonably primitive state of understanding what the trout saw and what the architectonics of a good trout fly could be. And when they presented that book to me, I had the slightest idea at first of whether they were mad or not, whether this stuff could work or whether it was just bizarre. Mm -hmm. I looked at it very, very closely. I remember for a week before I made any response, I finally thought that their logic was good, that what they said the trout was seeing pretty much had to be so. Um, it was not, the hackle on the side was not uh, there really to improve the verisimilitude of the fly, but really to make it ride a little better on the current, on the water. Um, and the use of the no hackle was probably keying in on the body, which they thought was the key, key area. Um, so I went with it. I worked very hard on it. Um, I don't think they were great writers, but um, it was, it was a, a cleanly argued and presented book, and the little work I did was not a great contribution. Hmm. Uh, it went off like a rocket. Um, one of the New York reviewers Christopher Lehmanhaupt uh, was a fisherman. Eventually, I fished with him a few times. But he, I remember, wrote a review in, in a syndicated column uh, that began, if you're a trout fisherman, this book will change your life. Mm -hmm. And um, the book just, just started selling uh, week after week in very large numbers. I think Crown reprinted it three or four times within a, the first the first year. Um, and then other books would, would come to me um, that were very good. Lutame, I would make tough decisions on which of the five or six saltwater fly fishing books were viable 
lefties was, lefty craze, mm-hmm. which I did, and Lou Tabery's, which was most specialized, mostly fishing for uh, striped bass on the eastern coast, was also a first-rate book, I thought. And I think from there on, it was my judgment. We got to be something on the order of, I had something on the order of 60 or 70 fly fishing books at that time. I think they were good ones. I think it was a valuable thing to bring back the old books, which provided the base for the entire company. Um, and I can go further. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm I'm interested. I, I love that you started off with uh, Swisher and Richards because that book still, to this day, comes up a lot, maybe more than any other book as far as the impact on uh, on people and fly fishing. You know, some of the biggest names today still talk about that book. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and so, but uh, clarify now, so you mentioned Crown, so you were with Crown, and so was Crown the publisher of the Swisher and Richards, and then did you, and when did the Lions Gate, or Lions uh, Press uh, come to be? There was a very good publisher in England by the name of Timothy Ben, who ran Ben Brothers, uh, or Ernest Ben Limited, which was a, a very 100-year-old British company. Uh, he was a serious fly fisherman. And just about this time, two or three things came together. Um, The editor-in-chief was going to leave Crown, and uh, I was asked uh, if I wanted to stay on. Um, They offered me relatively less, seriously less than than I would have needed to survive. I was also teaching full-time then, and I did, I was... I think in my 50s by this time. And I I couldn't really handle the two jobs together anymore. Uh, And just about then, Hunter was being country college where I taught, um, was beginning to get angry at Mm. me having two jobs (laughs) more than the dean earned. Um, So when Timothy Ben came to me, he asked me, would I start an American subsidiary for him and use my name? as the, the head of it. Um, uh, this was a, a way um, for me to say I was consulting for the Benz and to last a little longer as a teacher, which I did. I turned down the possibility of becoming editor-in-chief and um, um, moved out of, out of Crown and began what was called Nick Lyons Books, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, of the Ben Group, and told them at Hunter that I was I was consulting for, for the <laughs> British firm. Um, it um, <clears throat> it was an odd arrangement I had with with them uh, with the Bens. They wanted me to do something called package books, which meant that I would sign them up. Uh, pay all the fees necessary, produce the book, and then sell an edition of the finished book to another company, which would then do the distribution. But it's a kind of fail-safe way to publish, and it's a way that I found very, very difficult and offensive to all of my values, that I would not see the book or be able to help with it, help promote it or sell it, after it left my hands, it would be the job of Doubleday in the main case. Um, 
We sold most of the fishing books to Doubleday and also to a, <clears throat> a rather um, unsuccessful at that time publishing house called Winchester Press. Winchester Press did some of them. Um, I did this for them for several years, three years, published something on the order of 25 books, rather good ones, had no access to the crown books at that time. And um, then my close friend Timothy Ben was uh, discharged from his family business for some reason. And um, I was told that they were going to put me up for sale. Hmm. I said, well, there's nothing to sell. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only asset. Uh, we've sold the rights to all of the books, to Doubleday and Shocken and Winchester. Um, they have the rights to the books, the right to reprint. And so what you've got is a, is a table and my Underwood standard typewriter uh, and me. Um, and uh, I bargained rather hard with them. At the same time, raised raised uh, a few hundred dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars, from six fishermen I knew, all of whom were rather, rather wealthy. And signed documents saying that uh, they were prepared to lose all of their money, but <laughs> if, if this didn't work, um, and bought it away. And simultaneously, I decided to go to Crown and see if I couldn't get the rights to all of the books that I had edited there. Uh, I made a very uh, good offer for me uh, to get them, to get the rights, and um, took over all of those books also. Hmm. So I had a base of about uh, 60 or 70 mostly fly fishing books. When I started, I had the ones that I had came from Nick Lyons' books, the ones that came from, from Crown. By then, it was a pretty good-sized place, and, and I had to figure out ways to distribute the books uh, and the ways to uh, increase the size of the list. Hmm. So that was the beginning, really, of what became the Lyons Press, uh, which I had control of. I had a partner for a while named Peter Burford, in the business, I younger man, and I made him a partner um, rather a bit too early, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Business was called Lions Burford, Lions and Burford for some years. But eventually, uh, it was the Lions Press, got to be quite a decent size, and we had about 100 books on fly fishing. It mm. was uh, and then I stretched out from there and did books by Tom McGuane on horses and um, uh, a variety of others on mountain climbing and um, other subjects. Some very, very good writers, uh, and and the business grew. Wow. Wow, yeah, that's... Uh... I wanted to hear you mentioned about, you know, choosing uh, the, the books, you know, you choose to publish. I want to get into that. But before we do, uh, you mentioned Hunter Call uh, when you're at uh, Hunter Call, I guess yeah. it's Hunter. Yeah. Um, th that they got angry at you when you were, uh, you know, kind of double or had two things going. What was that like? What did you mean by angry? And then how did you eventually, what was the break when you eventually cut that? How, how did that all that happen? That's a good question. Well, the dean called me down. 
he said, uh, you know, I had gotten permission at the very beginning to have a, a second job. And uh, he called me down and said, uh, uh, you can't do this. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to ruin your reputation as a teacher. Uh, I'm sure you can't teach as well if you're doing that much work. And I, I argued that, um, in fact, being a publisher, and I was already writing a lot at that time, writing a lot of fishing columns for the new fly fishermen and elsewhere. Um, and I said, you know, the, the publishing had made me a better teacher. I'd learned how to edit well, and I passed this on to the students. Mm -hmm. It was a professional editing that they weren't going to get from most teachers. And I thought that I could, could uh, tell them about the whole publishing process as well as uh, um, my great love, which was the, the teaching of literature itself. I can remember telling the chair of the English department that uh, I thought I was a better teacher because of the time I'd spent. And um, she eventually got a, got a grant for, for a considerable amount of money um, for me to teach a publishing course. <laughs> which, which uh, uh, to me I did with, with, with a quiet irony of success that I had uh, I really had, had not only a bringing, I was not only bringing some special skills, but I was actually bringing some more business, so to speak, to the, to the English department. Mm -hmm. Eventually they, I was, I had been an associate professor and, I went up for full professor, which um, um, they asked me about my writing, and I gave them some of the technical writing I'd been doing at literary criticism, and also a list of all of the works that I'd done for Fly Fisherman, Field and Stream, and the other Aqua magazines. And uh, uh, I remember them asking me, someone asked me for, uh, at, at the at the uh, meeting uh, for the promotion, asked me what I what what water how water was related to what I was teaching. <laughs> so I I told them about uh, uh, writing quoted a long passage from A. J. McLean in that distinguished literary quarterly field and stream, and it seemed that. Uh, I floated through. I gave them a lot of names. Haig Brown. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of most of them, and I think that I think that uh, that made it sound as if I had some special esoteric knowledge of some sort. You can't say bad things about him and uh, about Hermann Hesse and and the others um, uh, if it's mixed in with Al McLean and a, and a batch of of such writers. Yeah. Then I was promoted to full professor. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so you actually, so you didn't, uh, you didn't leave that, that career. You stayed with that a little bit longer, but eventually did you, did you leave it or did you retire from that, the teaching? I retired after 26 years. Oh, wow. Um, I taught for a good while at Hunter. I think I did two jobs simultaneously for 17 or 18 years in that period. And um, uh, it was a great relief to uh, 
to retire. I love teaching. I'm very, very enthusiastic um, teacher of, of literature, which I have loved and which changed my life so much. Um, this book that I've just written, A Fire on the Straw, is a, is an account of, 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 of a certain arc of my life it begins with some fishing at this little boarding school, and it ends with a little pond I built in Woodstock, New York, and a trip to Montana. But the interesting point for me is that, and the reason it's titled that, Fire in the Straw, is that at, when I was in the Army, after I had graduated from the Wharton School with a degree in insurance, of all things, um, of all things for me, um, I, I, I did not know what I wanted to do. I did not want to go into insurance. Mm -hmm. I had not done well at school at all. I played basketball for Penn. Hmm. That sort of held me together. But I, I had a period of about two or three years where I tried desperately to learn what, what this literature was that I had fallen in love with reading in um, in the army interestingly enough but not surprising uh, it was the story big two-hearted river which i think set me in another direction entirely i the hemingway story about uh, a boy back from the army who goes fishing by himself hmm. on, on a river he calls the big two-hearted river but which was the fox river i found out hmm. um but that there was something so real about it, and the fact that a story about fishing, which I thought I knew so well, could be so evocative, evocative and moving, and could be something called literature, as it is, that somehow I I shifted uh, in my whole focus and what I wanted to do and and what I did. I went back to school as a freshman and then went on quit as a freshman after the freshman year and had myself shoehorned into the uh, PhD program at uh, the University of Michigan, um, which led to my fishing the sable and which mm -hmm. led to fly fishing. Mm. But, uh, it was a big change in my life. And uh, I taught with great enthusiasm. But I had four children in New York, and I need, needed money. So I went into publishing also. And that became a very strong part of my life. I, I loved publishing. And I, I loved publishing books on fishing. Probably 120 or 130 wow. on fly fishing alone. Wow. Good. It's um, wonderful older writers that I liked, like Harry Plunkett Green and... and um, uh, skewies and others that's uh yeah i'll put a link uh before we uh, uh to your new book in the show notes so anybody can check that out that's listening here i i also wanted to highlight i love that you mentioned basketball that's that was my sport as well so maybe at the end if we have time we'll we'll dig into your uh, your position there well i guess before we before we go what, what were you a, were you a guard or what was your position i, I was a guard i had not played in high school oh wow i was uh probably about five, six when I got to the beginning of my senior year and I couldn't make the team at 
Midwood High School had the worst team in New York. I couldn't make it. But I, I uh, got onto the freshman team at Penn. I'd grown about three inches over the summer. And uh, we had an All-American on the team, a man named Ernie Beck, who eventually went on to the, play for the Philadelphia Warriors. And we won the Ivy League, and we had quite a quite a substantial team there for five, four wow. years. I was on for four years. Uh, four years. So how that seems amazing to me, the fact that you, you don't make the high school team and you, you actually play at a, a Division One college. I mean, what did you just work your butt off for a year at basketball? How'd you do it? I, I've, I've always been like that, Dave. With everything I do, I, I put everything that I have into it. And it was not enough to become a great ball player, but I... In the army, I became a very, very good ball player. We played in France and um, won the divisional championship, and mm. I played in Shape headquarters, and I think just just lost to the people who who won it. But I was very good in the army and uh, could touch the rim at five nine. I could jump very high, huh. um, and uh, loved loved the game and loved fishing. Um, yeah. The two, and then finally, uh, I couldn't do basketball, and and with four children, it was hard enough living in the city to get out and fish enough. So hmm. I, I guess I did these other things. You did the other thing. Did you ever? Uh, did you ever write anything about about basketball? Any books or anything out there? I did. There's a book called "Take It to the Hoop," which is a very nice anthology on basketball. Um, and I have a piece in that, and I've repeated that chapter in my new book, uh, Fire in the Straw, um, about the day I gave up basketball, and um, something of a quick overlook at my little career at it. Um, I love the game. It just seemed full of, 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 of kind of verve and excitement, and even dance. Um, it, it was, yeah. Yeah, I love the way Steve Curry played that way, and and that's really the kind of game I had. Oh yeah, so you're a you're a, you're like a three a shoot a sharp shooter, or I I, I was not, but I but I, I'm thinking of his inner inside. Oh, game. his yeah, very good, which is under not looked at him strongly enough. He's a great ball player. That's right. He, I think it's the attachment of that to the long shot that they're afraid of him going in as well as taking the long one. I didn't have a long shot, but I, he was still shooting with two hands. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the triple threat. Is, is the triple threat? If you have the triple threat, right? You you could either you can make the long shot, or you can uh, drive, or you can pass, he right? Can pass, can... Yes, and he's good at those other. He's a terrific passer and a terrific uh, terrific driver to the basket he's got a great floater great uses both hands all the things one should <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah no this is great nick i, this, I love these conversations where i, I could talk basketball for with it for an hour for you know i mean just as easy as we could talk about uh literature it's it's amazing um i want to take it back i had that question i was thinking before you mentioned lefty and the fact that you know you're you're through the process you're choosing right you're choosing some of these 
these people to publish and some not to. How do you make those decisions? How do you know when you have a lefty or other these other greats? It's very hard. Um, and, of course, I've made some mistakes. I've, I've certainly, as commercial uh, gestures, I've, I, I loved doing a book called uh, French Fishing Flies. Um, I think it was a good book to do. It probably was where, I think Tom Rosenbauer told me that it was where he learned about Cool de Canard and that probably a lot of other people. But the book sold 800 copies, I think. <laughs> it would not be sold. I promoted it as learning learning how the French do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it still wouldn't sell. And there were there were others. I I often followed my passion down very unsuccessful commercial paths. I did a wonderful book on bamboo, uh, just called Bamboo. I <laughs> am man who had published a lot for the with Smithsonian and with National Geographic. A small man who was obsessed with bamboo. And he had brought brought it into the country and was trying to grow it himself so that he could make his own rods and so forth. And he spoke about the, the entire Tonkin region and where it came from. I thought it was a wonderful book. And that sold about eight hundred copies as well. Which is a loss, probably of seven or eight thousand dollars. Not not much more than that. Um, and there were others as well. Um, I think that um, it's it's hard to tell various commercial aspects of a book. For me, it was less difficult to choose those which I thought were important, uh, or in some way added to the knowledge of. Uh, of the world of fly fishing. Uh, I did some, I thought Lou Tabery's book really opened up striper fishing uh, with a fly rod uh, in a new way, which had never been opened before. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was worth doing. I think the book did well. I don't remember the statistics on it. But I did two or three other saltwater books, which I didn't know as well. Um, even one by Swisher and Richards hmm. on fishing in the Everglades uh, didn't do well at all. Um, and uh, I, I, I always tried to get the two of them together if I could, something that was valuable and something that could uh, sell very well. I must say I also published uh, what I thought were some very, very good non-technical books uh, I published Ted Leeson's books, all of them. Oh, yeah. I think he's a terrific writer. We did quite well with it. I republished all of Haig Brown's books, which I thought were important to do, even though it was, the, in some cases, the third or fourth time around. Um, I did uh, some salmon books, one by Lee Wolf, that I thought uh, were important, even though I knew... The numbers in salmon fishing are much, much lower than they are in trout. Mm -hmm. um, I commercially, I felt very comfortable publishing Dave Whitlock, whom I like like a lot, and I like I happen to like his rather cheery illustrations. Mm -hmm. But his knowledge of of 
trout, trout insects, what the insects are doing, um, how to how to deal with all aspects of fly fishing in rivers, is just wonderful. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that density of knowledge is what attracted me to his to his writing. Um, the variety of writers, how good they are, differed a lot. Um, some of them were terrific writers. Others um, had terrific knowledge and needed a little bit of work to, uh, I thought, to protect them from obscurity and other mm-hmm. difficult things that happen. But it, it is hard to make the decision. Uh, it's a question of looking at it and saying, does the world need another book on fishing the dry fly or not? Or does this say something that the other things, uh, the other books don't say? Uh, hmm. Sometimes my interest in English fishing led me to, uh, um, to pick books that I thought were very good but were impossible to bring over here. Um, I published Dermot Wilson's book on dry fly fishing, and um, uh, that that did not do well. Hmm. Yet I also did um, Trout and the Fly by um, Goddard and Clark, and that must have sold very very well. I, I was not I'm not there for the final figures now, but it uh, I think I think sold. Well over a hundred thousand copies here, which is a great sale. Hmm. That's another one that got a good general review in the New York Times. And as I, I don't know whether they still syndicate the, that column, but as the syndication went across the country, you could just see that one do well. Hmm. Did a very good book on fly tying by Jacqueline Wakeford, a wonderful tire, beautiful woman. Um, that did not do particularly well either. Oh. Hmm. But it's interesting how in the Goddard and Clark book, there was something there that reminded me of the Swisher Richards book, that they were really breaking into some kind of new territory that um, I didn't know had, had existed, whether it exists. I had not exactly. had existed. I think that's part of the, the selection. Um You've got, I think, to know, have a reasonable knowledge of, uh, of, of how, uh, how much has been written on a subject. And the fact that I had, had a great deal of uh, passion for reading everything I could on flat fishing sure helped know what was out there and pretty much how it had done or what, what it had done to the market. So I learned about the marketplace as well as being a fly fisherman, a serious one, and reading a lot from my own knowledge. I knew what was, I think, saying something significant or important. Yep. I've, I've had a number of people come to me with theories of, of one kind or another um, that I thought were off the wall, but <laughs> like, like some of the worst conspiracies theories that are out there. And they just had no basis in, in, in fact, and I didn't do those. Uh, I was at the beginning of James Prozac's career. Uh, I didn't do his original book of, of, of uh, drawings. Um, 
but he was a, he's a very interesting person. He's very talented, uh, very knowledgeable about a lot of different kinds of fishing. And uh, I didn't do the first book of, of illustrations, uh, which did very, very well, because I thought there were terrific illustrations, but I thought the amount of information on each of the fish was not sufficient to carry a book. I was wrong. Uh, he just took off like a shot, and everybody started promoting him. I eventually did a book of his um, called um, Fly Fishing and First Love, I think it was called. Mm. Um, it was a pleasant book. It, it's one of the books of his that did not do very well. And um, he has since gone on to uh, bigger and, and better things. But huh. Nice young man, very intelligent, and today uh, already a great authority in his, I guess, in his 30s. Made a whole career of it. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. OPST's rods represent decades of dedication to sustained anchor two-handed casting. A rod reflects its designer, and these rods are a true illustration of Skagit Master Edward's vision. The Pure Skagit series falls right in line with OPST's principles, a short, medium, fast-action rod that sports an extra-sensitive tip, all while maintaining a powerful lower section that's true and sure to leave you impressed by its feather-launching potential. And I've been using this rod for steelhead uh, lately and been blown away by its lightweight and, and the power it packs. You almost don't realize it's in your hand. It's Seriously, it's like... Um, it's ultralight. So that was, you know, thinking about how to describe this thing. I think that's the word that comes back to me. Uh, I was casting some big flies for steelhead with a sink tip and a bunch of wind. And I didn't have a problem at all, even with my less than perfect uh, casting technique. So I've been impressed with the 11 foot seven weight, but there is a huge uh, line. They have uh, three different rods in the lineup uh, from six to uh, nine weights and from 10 foot eight inch all the way up to 12 foot three inch, which pretty much for me covers covers it all. So um, I'm excited, excited to dig into more of this. Uh, these rods actually diverge from the micro series in a few ways. The upper grips are double weld and thus aligned uh, for the contemporary two handed rods. Uh, while the lower handle still remains switch style. Uh, these rods are also slightly faster than my, the micro series being a true medium fast action that utilizes the upper third of the rod. Targeted towards fishing large trout and up to Canadian and Alaskan king salmon, this series should cover all the bases when targeting those larger fish. Head over to wetflyswing.com OPST to check out the lineup right now. That's wetflyswing.com OPST. Sawyer offers a full line of modern and traditional products for oarsmen, canoeists, kayakers, surfers, and paddlers of all genres, providing unsurpassed function, performance, and beauty. They design and handcraft every product in the USA, ensuring everything they make is from the highest quality materials with careful attention to detail. They take pride in their employees, stewardship of the environment, and our country. In return, you have the assurance of knowing the product you receive from them is genuine, made in America, and cannot be replicated. I've been using Sawyer products for a long time now, which is why I'm definitely excited to share them with you on the podcast here. I've been down some crazy technical whitewater and mini fishing adventures that put me in places that were um, 
where I had to make a good move. And I, I love the design, the power, the performance, and always knowing that um, I can count on that stroke, even when you need to make you know that one to get past the rock or whatever. You can always count on Sawyer for that. And you can count on them as well. Sawyer products are designed by paddlers, oarsmen, and surfers alike to fully meet your performance needs. Pick up one today and experience the feel of water. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Sawyer to grab your set today. That's Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R, wetflyswing.com slash Sawyer to get started. Okay, back to the show. Hey, Brown, I just recently, we've talked about him. I mean, obviously, a lot of the people you're talking about, we've talked, uh, covered on this show. Um, uh, Art uh, Lindgren uh, wrote a book, uh, or has covered his life out of BC quite a bit. But um, the republishing thing, I had a question from the Facebook group um, it was uh, Jason, uh, Jason Pereira. He was kind of asking about that, about buying up the rights from books. Can you just talk briefly about that process? It sounds like you've been doing that for a long time. Is that something, um, you know, that is still going on to this day? Is that pretty easy to do? I, it, I think in most cases, uh, it's, it's a process of simply finding out who owns the rights and then seeing whether they want to see it, asking whether they want to see it reprinted or not. Hmm. Uh, in some cases where a British company like the company that, that originally published uh, GEM Skews' books uh, are no longer in business. And you had to, to get that. I had to find out which company had bought them and uh, who controlled the rights, whether they'd reverted to the family or not. Most publishing contracts have a clause that says if a book is out of print for a certain number of months, six or 12 months, and there is no intention to reprint, then the the owner of the copyright, the author or the author's heirs, have the right to get the rights back, just have them reverted to them. And uh, this happens a lot, where you have a, an individual who has had rights reverted to them. In a few cases, not so much with the fishing, uh, as with some natural history that I published and some other books, uh, it was hard to find the the owner. Uh, say the owner died in the 40s, though the author and owner died in the 40s. The book company had been sold, and I had to do some research. My connections to some British publishers helped a lot in that respect. I would find out from them who bought service Sealy which was the original publisher of SKUs. Um, I think with a new book, you go to the publisher who's doing it, and if there's not too much competition, you can usually get the rights, buy the lease the rights for uh, $1,500, $2,000, $3,000. Um, there are a, um, uh, a lot of books being published in England right now only a few of which I think can make the trip over to the United States and sell well. I've published several um, in my last days um, or as a consultant to uh, my son who runs a publishing business now that um, have not done well. In the case of Art Flick, I found Art. I asked him for the rights and we made a contract and reprinted it. But I think you have to find out who the copyright holder is. In some cases, 
like 19th century books uh, that have not been translated. Uh, the rights the rights have fallen out of copyright. The copyright protection is only for about 75 years, I think. And uh, even early books, I think some of the early Hemingway is actually uh, not protected by copyright anymore, in which case a public domain book you can just take and reprint. Oh, wow. Though if it's been reprinted by people, you cannot produce your book from theirs without their permission because there's a natural protection to the production process also, how it is laid out, how it is photographed and so forth. And there are usually notes, introductions and other things that go along which, which are new and which are, are protected by copyright. But mm -hmm. it's not an impossible process and not that difficult. Um, I think there are fewer books from the 19th century or the early 20th century that are viable as books to reprint. Um, the technology has changed so much by now, and the interest in literature has perhaps diminished by so much <laughs> by now that it's hard to find books that will do well. I'm very fond of a book, for instance, uh, called uh, Golden Days by a man named Romilly Fedden, which is public domain, published in about 1918 or 19, mm -hmm. I think, just after the First World War. I think it's a wonderful book about fishing in France just before the war, great days that, that the man had. And then uh, um, his best friend, the Frenchman, goes off to the war and dies within a month or so. Oh, wow. Um, that's very moving. Uh, mm -hmm. Very, very well written. Fedden went on to write other books on cooking and other things. But that's a terrific fishing book. And yet, when I republished it, I don't think I sold 300 copies of it. So there's a lot of, uh, it sounds like probably a lot of books out there still in the fly fishing space that, you know, either weren't published or weren't republished. Uh, probably lots of good stuff, right? Maybe, I mean, when you look back at the history, uh, you started kind of in the 60s, I guess, when you first started getting some of the publishing stuff going. When you look back at all the books before that, were there hundreds, thousands of of books on fishing? Or what, what's your take on that, just the history of, of literature? The British 19th century <clears throat> had wonderful writers. I think that um, um, the uh, writers on dry fly fishing and on nymph fishing, the coming of it by, by that Skews wrote about, um, they're wonderful writers. I don't know whether they can sell today. Yeah. I, I think they're... If you do them, they have to be done in small, small numbers. Um, every now and then, there's some specialized publisher. I have one. I did one with a uh, a group of, of folks in Upper New England who did redid a batch. They had a whole fishing list, and they redid some in editions of only a thousand copies, leather bound, with new introductions by by modern writers. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I wrote the introduction to one called uh, Where the Bright Waters Meet, 
by a wonderful writer named uh, Plunkett Green, was his name, Harry Plunkett Green, who was about 6'5", I understand, and <clears throat> was an opera singer and would give the individual performances, would be a, 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 a writer on stage. Um, uh, it's an absolutely delightful book about fishing a beautiful little river called the Bourne, which he just loves to pieces. He says that the trout were always gentlemen about it. They never never were known to take a nymph. They only took the dry fly. <laughs> uh, it just has the best of English charm and some wonderfully funny and and beautiful uh, writing about, about fishing. The man just was crazy about his fishing. He just loved it. Um, it's a terrific book. I think that publishing it in an edition of a thousand is about the best you can expect. You can never sell more than that. So the question is partly if you charge enough, if you charge $50 for it and you think you can sell a thousand copies, yeah, probably going to make out at least paying for it and making a little money. But you can't do it as a commercial book. Hmm. I, think, I think that book could not sell. 800 copies here in the United States as a, as a paperback, say. I don't think anyone would buy it, but it's terrific. Hmm. I think those are judgments that you have to make. I, some people go into the business. One person told me he went into the business, um, the publishing business, because he had a small fortune and he was told you could make a fortune in publishing. And he turned, or he had a big fortune, and he, he made it into a small fortune <laughs> by yeah. losing a lot of money. That's right. That's right. We we joked about that a lot over the years here, just the fact that, you know, just going into fly fishing, you got to really have that passion because it's such a small niche. If you're going to try to make it your living and your career, you know, it definitely you're not. There's I don't, I don't think there's really even a billion-dollar company in the space still. Um, yeah. So the this is this is really interesting, Nick. Um, you, I, I wonder. You, know, I was looking through some of the recent, but I'm not sure if they're recent. But I saw a book in the Lions Press catalog. I think it was it was on Larry Bird. And I'm curious, you know, um, just just generally, we talked some fly fishing books, but how much, you know, when you look at the inventory, either over the years or currently, is uh, kind of fly fishing or fishing versus just all sorts of other topics. I think it depends on the book. It uh, it's very hard to generalize. There are books like Swisher Richards and Art Flick and, and Tom Rosenbauer's uh, Orvis book mm -hmm. that have sold a quarter of a million copies or, or more wow. over the years and continue to sell. Um, I don't think any of them ever have the immediate sale that a good book in the sports field, a good golfing book, one on Tiger Woods at the right time when he's either at the Head, yeah. head top of his game and, and uh, there isn't a, an article on golf that doesn't mention his name um, sometimes those fall into the field of into the world of bestseller um, and there are a great number of those sports figures LeBron James today yep. um, and um, at other times if you get a little down the line uh, my my son has published a book by uh, uh, 
played for the Knicks and was one of the first really Frazier. wigglers. Oh, Frazier, yeah. Not quite Frazier, but the other the other guard. Oh, uh, old school, older or newer? Um, let's see, who would that be? Earl Monroe. Oh, Earl the Pearl. Yeah. And I, I yeah. met him, uh, Tony, my son had him in his office, and I met him. He's still skinny. He looks like he could play ball today. You know, I was looking at a couple of your books. I picked up, I went to my bookshelf, and I've got uh, Art Flick's Master Fly Tying Guide. Yes. And uh, I've got uh, Dave Whit- you know, Dave Whitlock's Guide to Aquatic Trout Food. Trout right. Food, two books that kind of, one came from. Um, so the one was Crown, and then also the Lions uh, was Dave Whitlock's book. And that's the Lions in Burford, right? That was before you became Lions Press. Um, or is that correct? Maybe I'm off on that. I, I don't I don't know. I think it probably is a Lions and Burford. Yeah. But, uh, it was always my business, and I brought this young man in, Peter Burford, um, and made him a partner. Oh, gotcha. Business. But uh, eventually he he left a few years later, and then I took the name The Lions Press. So the first book, um, the crown book, would have been done when I was there. And the, at Crown, and then that's one of the books I acquired and put on the uh, on the Lions Press list. That's right. That's right. Perfect. Well, we're. Um, I was going to check with you on dry fly fishing. I'm not sure how many books you had there, but um, we're kind of in a dry fly season. We're trying to touch on some of those topics. Do you know? Is there one? Did you have a number of dry fly related uh, books? I, I had a few. I did. I redid uh, Dermot Wilson's book called The Dry Fly. Uh, done in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one of the better books I did was uh, the Masters on the Dry Fly, which was an anthology put together by my friend Mike McGill, John Mike J M McGill, M um, I G E L. Um, that was a very good dry fly book, and there were I think fourteen chapters by different folks who fished the dry fly. Um, mm-hmm with some mastery. So I did that. Can't yeah. think of the others. Um, I okay. Think, I think that Gary LaFontaine did the Caddis book with me. Oh, right. But did not do the, um, uh, his book called the dry fly. I, I'm, I yeah. that he did that with someone else. So he did, yeah. Caddis flies, which was, which is another book that just gets recommended so many times on this you know, over the years. So, okay. So that gives us a couple. And then on these books, how many, you know, obviously there's a, a ton of books. Some of them are probably out of print. I mean, can we, like, as far as a resource, if you went to Lions Press, can you get a lot of these books we talked about today there, or is there some resource where we can look some of this up? Um, I think the best thing would be to uh, contact the new Lions Press, which is owned by a company called uh, Roman and Littlefield in uh, in maryland <clears throat> they would have uh, i think if you sent a list to the publicist uh, they would be able to uh, to the publicity department they would be able to tell you immediately some of the books and i'm not sure which were let go out of print and t- my son tony uh, acquired the rights and has them in his his uh, um, skyhorse press Oh, okay. Skyhorse is his. It's all gotcha. 100%. I know that I wrote an introduction to Selective Trout, for instance, and that's available for 
from Skyhorse. Oh, uh, cool! It's a okay. new new edition and uh, got some some significant changes in it, made mostly by Doug Swisher. I think Cole had died before then. Okay. Okay, so Skyhorse. So, so that was going to be my next question. If I, I recently had a guest, I'm not sure if you've heard of Art Lingren, but he's out in BC and he's written a lot about um, like the history of Haig Brown. He's just wrote a book on uh, Sid Glasso, and I was asking him about his books. He he's written about ten books in recent years, but none of them really have been published by a big publish uh, publisher. Lots of small, like slow, you know, just a few hundred copies. If he was interested in like expanding out, would he, you know? connecting with Skyhorse or lions i mean what would be the, what would that process if you had kind of a guy that maybe was producing small scale and wanted to elevate it what, what would you recommend i think i think the best thing would be to go to one of those two houses um and i think he should consider them both uh, tony runs a very good house but his house is not as narrowly focused on uh, my son tony who owns mm -hmm. horse it's not as narrowly focused on the outdoors as mine was because Tony, though he's done some fishing is not, not as obsessed by it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would, the other place on the other hand, the old place that has the old lions press is, um, now connected to Stackpole, which is oh. a fishing list. Of course. Both of them are owned by Roman and Littlefield. Um, I don't know who the general editor is for both lists, but Judith Schnell, S-C-H-N-E-L-L, -L, who was the publisher of Stackpole, is now handling all the Stackpole books for Roman and Littlefield, and I suspect she may have control of the books that I that come from my list also. At any rate, I could yeah. give you, I could email you an address to get in touch with her. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I think the uh, used books, fishing book shops like Ken Callahan often have a very good selection of all the books I published or know how to get them rather quickly. And I could give you the name of several like that also. Okay. Okay, I perfect. I think per the one on the West Coast that I know is Adam's Angling. I'm not sure that he still deals in books, though. He may just deal in rare fishing tackle. Okay. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Um, I was also thinking, you know, as we were kind of, I was thinking like, okay, if I'm going to have a few questions to wrap this thing up, we we, we, uh, we kind of broke here. We had a little bit of uh, an audio thing. We're actually recording this second part now at the the next day from when we started yesterday. But that's the beauty of the the podcasting is all, all seamlessly link this together. But, um, you know, talk Tom McGuane, you know, uh, I had um, John Gearock on a, a while ago, and he talked about the impact, and he described how powerful his writings, you know, were and are. Um, what, what's your, uh, you know, what was his influence on you? It sounds like you knew him a little bit or knew of his work. McGuane's? Yeah. Uh, I think I think McGuane is the single best writer uh, writing about angling today. He doesn't write that much, but what he's written, Silent Seasons and uh, individual articles, the quality of the writing itself is unquestionably, uh, uh, I think, the very highest level. John has a, uh, a wonderful um, prose style, which is very, very much uh, accessible to everyone who fishes. McGuane's may be a little too esoteric, both in the um, 
syntax and in the references. Uh, I don't find it so, but that's my business. That's the trade that I'm, I'm in. I like John's writing very much, and I like his his uh, uh, particularly the way he turns the personal into something that becomes much more universal and that everyone can enter into. I'm especially fond of Ted Leeson's work. Mm. Published it. Uh, I correspond with Ted to this day, and I think uh, I wish he would write more. He seems to have quieted down after his last book, but uh, uh, The Habit of Rivers is is a masterwork. I think it's a wonderful mm. book. They all do something different. McGuane has a better overview of everything. Uh, I, I believe that Ted is an excellent uh, writer within the philosophic uh, and, and also the the larger view. But if you look at the difference between a Leeson story or article and, and a McGuane, McGuane is capable of jumping in a variety of different directions, exploding in different directions. Uh, Ted chooses not to do that, but to give us a narrative that develops um, uh, which I think McGuane does brilliantly in his in his novels, but I don't think that he and his short stories, but he doesn't often do it about fishing. He's mm-hmm. less concerned with the day out and what it meant and who said what than he is about a larger picture. Uh, I think they're the three of them. Um, no, I'm putting myself with them. <laughs> no, the three is Ted um, Girak and and McGuane. Yeah, probably the leading writers today, though I don't keep up with things as much as I I used at eighty eight. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. I think I think you're right. I mean, just from my perspective, I'm not uh, obviously as uh, accomplished or as read uh, well read as you are. But when I think of it, um, you know, definitely uh, Girock, McGuane, and then Leeson. I mean, yeah, I can't think of anybody bigger even now. I mean, there's a lot of writing going on, and that's the interesting thing. Kind of on my next question here with the. I'm sure you probably haven't embraced audiobooks, you know, as much as maybe some of the younger generation, but you know, that's a big thing out there. And I've listened to a lot of books on tape. I mean, we're doing a podcast now. This is all audio. We're we're kind of teaching, right? We're teaching people through audio. What's your take on audiobooks? And do you think um it's you know good or bad for for just kind of what you've done for your career? I, I have to admit that I I know nothing about the field, that I think I've listened to one audio tape. Not on uh, fishing at all, but on on uh, mm-hmm. um, art actually, which my my late wife liked very much. I have nothing against it. I think it's a nice way to uh, to acquire to enter into, and I think it's essentially healthy. It it should not for anybody take the place of a book, yeah. which is a different pace. Uh, audio comes in and it doesn't stop unless you stop it. Um, when you read something, it stops every second that you stop. Hmm. Um, and it's a very different reading experience. You've got to read slowly or you're going to miss half the sentence. Um, and when you rush along, you miss some of the best things that take place. I, I prefer very much the book to the ebook and also to the audio. But I think audio only helps. I would love to hear 
somebody read their own work, for instance. I'd prefer it more if the author read it. I once heard the poet uh, E.E. Cummings read, and I would bet that I I didn't understand. I, I know that I didn't understand the poems until I heard him read them. Mm. Uh, just the inflection and the like. I wish more writers would read their own work, and I wish the audio field was more uh, generous to the the fact that the sound of the spoken word uh, by the person who wrote it uh, is is a uh, great value to the listener. But I don't think it's hurt hurt the books at all. I think yeah. it only stretches out their possible influence. Exactly. So, yeah, I think it yeah. it hit hits a new probably hits another audience. Uh, and so, I mean, just like this, we're, we're people are listening to this now, and they're going to listen to this, and they're gonna like me. I, I've you know I've never talked to you before this, but ha- hearing you talk for an hour here has been amazing because I have a, a way better perspective just on what you're talking about of, of you just from listening to the, how you, you know, pronounce how you're very meticulous and obviously analytical. Um, For better or worse, uh, we learn more when we hear the spoken voice. I think, I think that it is the spoken voice of the person uh, who wrote the material that I think is the most valuable. Yeah. There are professional readers who are very good and I have heard bits and pieces of people reading uh, reading a, a, a novel. I heard a lady friend of mine likes Middlemarch by George Eliot. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I heard a, a snippet of reading. And it was done by a professional reader of great skill. <clears throat> and I think that can bring out new meanings as well. I wouldn't say... It should only be the author. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard great uh, readers, uh, people that have read uh, books for other authors, and yeah, if they're really skilled, it definitely comes across uh, really well. So, okay, Nick. Well, I think that's about all I have. I was just going to kind of wrap it up here. Um, you know, you mentioned, I guess, in the next six to six months or so, it sounds like you've got at least one book that's out there. You want to give us a reminder on that book, and then what else do you have? Anything else you have coming in the next year or so? Sure. I- I, I can't fish anymore. I, I have rotator cuff problems, which makes casting almost impossible. And I have a great balance problem, which keeps me away from rivers where I don't particularly want to end things by drowning in one foot of water. Um, I'm writing much more about other matters. And the book that I finished in, in September, uh, in my 88th year, um, is really a, the only true water biography I've ever written from the uh, early days that I spent in a boarding school. My father had died three months before I was born. My mother pretty much froze up and uh, tried to make a go of it as a single mother and I think run a little business, but uh, I think put me in the boarding school as something that she had to do. I spent three years there and then pretty much wasted my my early years, mid-years. And um, it wasn't until I went into the Army uh, that I, I really began to uh, say, what do I want to do with my life? And the book really is about this fire in the straw is the name of the book. And it's about 
me who discovers at a certain age, not particularly early, that uh, the little fire, the passion, the love of doing something uh, is is what you should pursue in your life if you possibly can. Hmm. Um, I had been sort of pushed into the Wharton School, which is a wonderful business college, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I played for the basketball team in the mm-hmm. 50s. But uh, I hated the course I was taking. I, I got C's and D's, yep. just managed to get through. I was studying insurance. And then when I changed, uh, the language of insurance did not prepare me for the language of, of Yates and, and uh, mm-hmm. Aaron Keats and, and all the others. Um, so it was a very dramatic change. The book is about that change. And then after I changed and gotten a PhD in English, um, the, the remainder of the book is how you hold on to it somehow, what you do to protect this fire that you've, you've somehow gotten out of the flame. And it uh, has some fairly dark sections. Uh, the death of my wife, whom I was married to for 58 years. Mm. And the death of my oldest son, uh, Paul, a professor of English. Um, and some dark days that I had when I lived in a tiny little room in Greenwich Village and determined that I wanted to be a writer. And the writing came back in the mail Almost, uh, I thought. I thought that the uh, the New Yorker had somebody down at the main post office. It seemed to come back this next day. I put mm. it in the mail, and this little pink slip would come back. No, not for us, or something like that. Um, but those years of trying to be a writer, which was were really years that went into my thirties. I don't think I was under 35 when I wrote my first stories uh, and I tell the circumstances of those. Those were fishing stories um, about a trip I'd taken with a uh, remarkable uh, heavy drinker. Mm. Nine hours to get to the beaver kill, which was only an hour and a half away. (laughs) And then another story about the first trout I ever caught which I got by gigging it. I, I put a hook in its mouth and yanked. It was yeah. summer. And uh, uh, those really got me started on the writing about fishing. And that's in the book, In Fire in the Straw, also. So there's a little of that fishing part of my life. But also, I was a teacher for 28 years a, uh, in both University of Michigan and Hunter College a book publisher for another 25 or 30 years, some of it simultaneously. I wrote, did ghostwriting. Hmm. Then finally had some wonderful years at the end when I was what you would call retired. When I just wrote, I just helped my wife, Mary, uh, as much as I could. And where she illustrated some of the books I was writing, which enabled us to... uh, do something together, really, for the first time. I think it's a, it, it, in the aggregate, it's a very uh, happy book in, mm-hmm. the, in the discovery, the fact that I did discover this 
and I did have a, a rich, very full life. But it has its dark moments and mm-hmm. not connected to fishing at all. There you go. Well, as you're talking there, I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, Stephen Pressfield, but he wrote um, he wrote this book I've talked about before. It's called The War of Art. And the basic premise is, is that, you know, like he was a struggling, he was, a, he talks about the struggling artist that really loved writing and he always wanted to be a writer. But, you know, for 20 years, he just struggled at it. He was, you know what I mean? He was like literally living in his car at, at a certain point. Um, but eventually he got there. And I, and I kind of throw this question back at you because you mentioned about how it sounds like you've done some amazing stuff and done what you want to do. What would be your advice to somebody out there who's maybe, you know, maybe in their 40s right now doing a job, but they're really, interested going all in on their passion you know what i mean but they still they've still got to pay the bills they got to feed the kids but they really want to go in on this other thing what what would you what would you tell that person i've I've been there i know that problem and uh, i think you do a lot of things to protect the family i don't think it has to perhaps it doesn't have to live as richly as 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 you've been providing for it perhaps you could pull back you must start to do what you want to do, maybe a little at a time, and then build it. I would say there's virtually no chance that uh, a very slim chance that someone's setting out on on let's say writing uh, at midlife without having done it to say I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to earn my living at it. Yeah, the New Yorker gets, I believe, twenty thousand submissions. <laughs> wow any given month uh, and they accept one to zero i was told they have their own staff writers of course yeah the odds are are very tough and um i think that in my case the three things that i found first i had to discover what i wanted to do then i had to take a look at it and see whether i I could do it could i could i write uh, for 10 years, I wrote, and I, I wrote some graduate school essays and had them published, but nothing I wrote was of any, any, any joy to me or any hmm. significance or did it pay much. And when Field and Stream sent me a two-line uh, note, we love your story, Mecca, and a check for $1,000 wow. to you, I, it just, I almost peed in my pants. <laughs> Seemed terrific. Uh, and ended up writing hundreds and hundreds of fishing stories, which I love to write. Um, yeah. I see. So it's the first thing you discover what you want to do. Then you try to see whether you can do it or not. And I think you also, in my case, I realized that I was pretty dumb and that I, I was illiterate. I didn't know anything about this world of, mm. of literature. So I, I did the hard thing. I went back for a, for a doctorate uh, oh, wow. in a different subject, you know, in literature, which was very hard. I already had a wife and two children. I had a tiny bit of money that I'd saved in the army. And while I was going to graduate school, I started to teach to pay the bills, which is, I never thought I'd be a teacher. And I also took in typing. And uh, it wasn't beneath me. Nothing I've ever done, even the ghostwriting, I never considered beneath me. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about ghostwriting by coming in and writing someone else's book by use of a tape recorder and some imagination. Mm. Um, but um, 
I did I did about four or five of them, and then I didn't have to do them anymore financially. So I, uh, I started writing more of my own. But sometimes you can find a parallel job, one that will teach you something about the thing you want to do most. Ghostwriting gave me that. Editing gave me that. Um, and then the final thing is learning how to survive at it, you know, just yeah. to keep it, keep it alive. That, that's the survival oh, piece. It's a hard decision. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Traditional answer, Dave, is don't give up your day job. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, don't give up the day job. You got it until you can until you can do it. No, I I appreciate that. Uh, well, Nick, I think uh, I think this is pretty good. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, you've for me, um, you know, I think back my my dad had a little fly shop back when I was a kid, and uh, I've been reading your stuff my entire life. You know, I've got books on the shelf that um, I know I've had when I was five years old you know what i mean before i could even read because i was sitting around the fly shop and so i just want to thank you for that you know the influence and and all the people you know that are listening to this now and, and down the line that are going to read your stuff i uh yeah i just appreciate all the work you put in and uh thanks for coming on today thank you dave i i loved all of the fishing writing i did i didn't do it to make the uh the thousand bucks as much yep. as i wrote it to uh just because i such wonderful things happened to me on the water. And they, living in cities a lot of my life, uh, it, it gave me a way to relive those days on the water. Um, mm. But that that's different from having had a career in it, I guess. Exactly. Hey, Nick, uh, would you mind if I read something? I had an email. I just You, you got me thinking. I got a short little email. This came from Simon. I, I told Simon, he sent me this. He's from... Um, he listens to the podcast in England. I'm not exactly sure, but he, he sent me this email and it's pretty powerful. I told him, I, I sent him an email back and I said, Hey, do you mind if I read this on the air? Because it's pretty powerful. What, what Simon said was, um, he said, hi, Dave. I know that I'm a little by myself. I had a stroke a couple of years ago, which has left me a little worse uh, for the wear. I cannot drive anymore. So I have to dr uh, travel by train and taxi. My right hand leg swells up. If I walk anywhere, my right arm swells up when I do when I do too much and my shoulder gives me pain, but I travel by train to the nearest station and get a taxi from there. A day's fishing on the reservoir and one of their boats cost me about 95, uh, I guess that's UK, uh, dollars a, a day. I can't really fish because of the walking is so painful. I love my fly fishing that much. I won't give it up. Yours, Simon. That's a wonderful letter. That's Isn't that amazing? That's very moving. Good for him. I know. I wish him all all the very, very best. I know. This is a, a shout out to uh, to Simon for sure. And uh, I mean, to everybody. I mean, you're, like you said, I think uh, you're 88 now. And, uh, you know, again, it's uh, we, we've all got the pains and, and you're still going strong. So, um, yeah, Nick, I just want to thank you again. And we'll, we'll keep in touch with you. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me on. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 202. If you get a chance, uh, check out the members group. Uh, we've got a, a group of people that are supporting this show uh, for about the price of a, a cup of coffee. Um, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash members or click the link uh, at, at our homepage. And uh, it'd be great to, great to have you there. And uh, this helps kind of keep things moving along here and paying the paying the bills to keep this thing going so i appreciate it if you've already uh subscribed over there uh also uh calling all co-hosts if you are interested in co-hosting this show uh 
the member society is the place to find out how to do it and your chance if you want to join. So if you have interest, head over there and check it out. Uh, send me a DM there and we can chat. Uh, also, if I get a little energy and can do it, I might put together a PDF of all the writers and books that Nick talked about today. He really covered a ton of stuff. So um, I was uh, kind of frantically trying to keep up with it as he was talking about all the great writers. Um, you know, so in uh, Lions Press Publishing, um, even though uh, Nick is, you know, has sold that, that's still a place you can see a lot of the, check out a lot of those books or talk to the publisher, um, the current editor or publisher there and check it out. Uh, that's pretty much a wrap. Uh, you can go to, uh, like I said, uh, wetflyswing.com slash 202. Check out the show notes. I want to thank you today for stopping by to check out the show. Hope to maybe catch uh, up with you soon, maybe on the river or maybe online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.